Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with David Blight. David, how are you doing? Uh, thanks, Josh. It's good to be on with you. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you. And I'm going to start by reading a bit of your bio. And no way, I'm sure you've been on many podcasts, and I'm sure people comment that it's quite a bio. So I can only do some of the highlights. That's fine. Oh, don't worry about it. Okay. Uh, David Blight is a teacher, scholar, public historian. At Yale University, he's Sterling Professor of History. You've been there since 2003. Let's see, jumping to a few other things. Director of the Gilder Lerman Center for Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition. You wrote in 2018, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom, which has garnered nine book awards, including the Pulitzer, the Francis Parkman Prize, the Bancroft Prize. It's been optioned by Higher Ground Productions and Netflix for a projected feature film. That's not very interesting. A frequent book reviewer for the New York Times, Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, lots of places. Uh, here I have to comment. I saw this one near the bottom of your bio. Honorary degree from Transylvania University. <laughs> and, But I'm kind of curious about that as well as the Netflix thing because is there going to be a movie based on your work on Frederick Douglass and possibly Lincoln? I'm not sure. And But here I'm going to say what, what brought me to you was mm-hmm. that I was reading the New York Review of Books and there was a review that you wrote on Jim Oaks, so previous guest Jim Oaks, a book, Crooked Path to Abolition. Yeah. And I'm going to read the closing paragraph. I think it was the closing paragraph of that. And it said, we still have two constitutions on many issues, the nature of federalism, voting rights, election laws, the right to bear arms, and much more. Now, I saw much more and thought, yeah, sustainability, evolution, pollution. Just evolution, sustainability and pollution. We have a majority in the Supreme Court determined to return every power possible to the states, reverting to the, quote, union, to many decades ago when it was a collection of battling legal sovereigns with common borders. The historical template for these and other future debates may always be the profound failures and triumphs of anti-slavery constitutionalism's struggle against pro-slavery constitutionalism in the 1850s and 60s. And that's exactly what, this is my world, and brought to me, brought to it mainly by previous guests, Adam Hochschild's Bury the Chains about British abolitionism, which brought me to Manisha Sinha about American abolitionism, she was also a professor of mine at Columbia when I was an undergrad. Mm. And, and Jim Oaks, several books, uh, Freedom National, Crooked Path to Abolition. And so, oh, and then I have to mention, it's just past July 4th. So today's July 10. And I decided to listen all the way through to a reading of What to a Slave is Your 4th of July. Mm-hmm. Read a couple articles about it. And you're mentioned in, in several of them. Mm-hmm. And I heard for the first time, I wasn't listening for it, but I heard something that I was very, I guess, pleasantly surprised because I'm not a historian. But he mentioned that, I guess he was referring to, this is uh, Frederick Douglass, was referring to the Fugitive Slave Act of how it made slavery national. Mm-hmm. And he referred to uh, William Lloyd Garrison, but also referred to a constitution that he was very proud of. So I guess this is part of where he was moving on from what he'd gotten from William Lloyd Garrison and was reading two separate ways of seeing the Constitution. One which was saying that freedom was national the freedom was the standard was the normal situation and slavery was the unusual thing. And some people read it the other way. Mm-hmm. This has been for me tremendously valuable. For one thing, the abolition movement reversed, changed a uh a big part of human history going back over 10,000 years in 
a couple centuries. Yeah. And and we need to do this is something I see that could we do this in mm-hmm. sustainability? And I see Lincoln, Douglas, Clarkson as huge role models for what's possible. Right. And one of the things that's really interesting to me is is there a reading of the Constitution that talks about pollution? Mm. I'm getting ahead of myself here because I've just talked a lot. That's okay. Uh, well, you know, to pick up where you found yourself there with, well, with Douglas in that Fourth of July speech, that is the moment in his life. It's 1852, July 4th, 1852, when he is making the full shift away from William Lloyd Garrison's view of the Constitution, which had been that it was hopelessly complicit with slavery uh, because of the many features in it that were pro-slavery. But Douglas is broken with that by the early 50s. He comes under the influence of a whole variety of other abolitionists. He's beginning to lean more toward an anti-slavery use of the Constitution as early as, say, 1849 and 50. But by 52, when he calls the Constitution a, quote, glorious liberty document uh, in that Fourth of July speech, he's come out full, full bore for this anti-slavery constitutionalism. Now, both of those interpretations of the Constitution, and this may help here in at least thinking about how the Constitution may ever be used for sustainability, both of those interpretations, a rigidly pro-slavery view of it that said uh, the three, everything from the three-fifths clause to the original fugitive slave clause to all those compromises that had to be initiated with the South, especially the Deep South, to get them even to buy into the Union in, 18, in 1787, 89, or the growing anti-slavery uses of the Constitution, which are pretty old. They especially get traction in the 1840s in the writings of a certain set of radical abolitionists like Lysander Spooner and and others, uh, William Goodell even more so. uh, They began to see the Constitution in its liberatory passages, in its possibilities for freedom. They began with the preamble uh, about a more perfect union. They they went to the clause uh, where the Constitution guarantees to every state a, quote, Republican form of government. They especially went to the Bill of Rights, uh, the various uh, provisions, especially in that First Amendment. Uh, they even came up with a theory of citizen, of universal citizenship for Americans, uh, based on some of the language of, of the Constitution. And in the Privileges and Immunities Clause, they especially found a pathway to this idea that the Constitution ultimately can be and should be interpreted as an anti-slavery and a natural rights document. Now, both sides of this are using the Constitution, and this is what we still do today, which is obvious to people. Both sides in that great argument, say in the last 30 years before the Civil War, 
are using the Constitution in an instrumental way. They're using it strategically. No question about it, which is what happens today in every way. It's what happens in all the court decisions. My God, have we ever had an activist Supreme Court quite like we do now with that six Republican majority. But both sides back there in the 1840s and 1850s were drawing upon actual provisions of the, of the Constitution. Take, for example, the Fifth Amendment. <laughs> the Fifth Amendment was used by both sides. Mm-hmm. I mean, on the one hand, the Fifth Amendment guarantees an American's right to property. And the South claimed that in season and out, every day and every way. They said under the laws of a southern state, slaves are property, and therefore they have a right to their property and the transport of their property anywhere they wished. But at the same time, that Fifth Amendment has the language about due process of law and privileges and immunities. And so both sides use that to say, wait a minute, the Constitution stands for our point of view. In one case, the Constitution stands for enslavement of other human beings by by right. And the other side saying, no, it's a document, the language of which opens itself to the destruction of something like slavery. In fact, the William Goodells, these philosophers of the anti-slavery Constitution that had such influence on the more famous abolitionists like Garrett Smith, Frederick Douglass, and many others who eventually joined the Republican Party, they're arguing (laughs) that the Constitution is ultimately born of the natural rights tradition because the American Revolution was born of the natural rights tradition, the idea of equality before God, that some rights, some liberties are by nature, and therefore, in this document, guaranteed by nature. Now, as anyone hearing this uh, has already thought, uh, this is a conundrum. This is a, uh, a, a rather desperate conflict. These are two different constitutions, which is Jim Oaks's point by the way, in that, that, that splendid book, Crooked Path to Freedom, is that there were two constitutions. The United States had two constitutions, and they were on a course of terrible conflict. One might say a house divided. Very much a house divided. And, you know, Lincoln's famous use of that biblical metaphor in 1858 is hardly original with him. It goes back quite a ways in... in um, the broader discourse about slavery in America. Um, But we can see here that both sides are using the Constitution. Both sides are claiming it. And are we not doing exactly the same thing today? Whether And you ticked off that list of issues I cited in that review, but there could be many more on that, that list. It all does come back to the differing, the very different visions of federalism. You know, the powers reserved to the federal government and the powers reserved to the states, and where do the two meet? History determines that. People had a right to believe in the wake of emancipation, in the wake of an all-out civil war that led to emancipation first by executive order and then by constitutional amendment. 
imposing the liberty of four million enslaved people onto the South, followed by, you know, two more uh, remarkable constitutional amendments. The 14th and 15th Amendments are the Second American Constitution, which enshrined equality before law and at least the beginnings of the right to vote into the Constitution. That's a new constitution. So out of that tremendous conflict of the Civil War, caused, you could say, in part, by these two differing constitutions, especially over the issue of slavery, uh, you get a second constitution, the second founding, as many of us now call it, uh, that United States that really tried to live under Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, which is birthright citizenship, due process of law, and most importantly, uh, equality before law. The problem is that 14th Amendment, of course, was so violated, so abused, so misused uh, for the next half century and more that we've had to have, you know, the modern civil rights movement, among other struggles, to even make, to even give it new kinds of traction. But right now in the United States, we are once again fighting like hell over how to interpret what equality before law actually means. Does a woman have equality before law if she insists on controlling her own body and whether she has a baby with it? No, say many. And no, said the Supreme Court, and millions more say, yes, of course she does. You know, that's a 14th Amendment question. So was gay marriage, as people may remember. That was literally a 14th Amendment decision by the court. They simply said under under Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, gay people who wish to marry don't have equality before law. Now, a significant Minority of that quote of that court, of course, voted no on that. And they now have allies on the court that they didn't have at that moment. And they just enacted last week that decision, uh, that strange decision about the website designer who had never even had such a case uh, being asked to design websites for gay people who want to be married. But nevertheless, the court managed to drum up and find themselves a case where they could once again denigrate or at least deny the right, the full rights under the 14th Amendment to gay Americans. So, you know, this is a, this is an eternal struggle. Uh, two constitutions on many issues. Uh, take environmental protection. The recent. the Yes. Yeah. There's a, a recent court decision that has pulled back the powers of the EPA, because they say it violates state authorities over the environment. And again, you think about all the many, many, many ways that the national federal government has entered American society, entered the economy, if you like, entered our social systems in the past century and a half, because of all the reasons anyone can name, modernity, industrialization, urbanization, the emancipation of four million people from, from human bondage, the evolution of something called gay rights, the evolution of something called women's rights, the evolution of the 
of the full equality of marginalized peoples, uh, you begin to realize that history makes this constitution change. And then history can also make it change backward or forward. <laughs> and I think your cause of sustainability or environmental issues is right there at the heart of it. I mean, uh, most of us are concerned about the climate, although most of us do not know what to do about it, except we get hotter every day. We have more floods. I mean, I'm here in New England right now under under flood warnings, uh, which just just hit the past 24 hours. So this is all if, if American democracy survives, Josh. And I guess that's still an open question, although it's it's still surviving. If American democracy survives, it means that we sustain this never ending fight through the Constitution of just what it means to have federalism, separation of powers, and what it means to have equality before law given to us in the 14th Amendment. Uh, a lawyer friend of mine told me that approximately two-thirds of all litigation or case law, uh, litigation is in one way or another 14th Amendment litigation. That's how important that, that two-sentence Section one of the 14th really is everything we do, everything we believe in at some point gets passed through it. You said a lot to digest. <laughs> I know. I rambled on. I'm going to focus on one part. It was a lot. I wouldn't call it rambling. Here's something that I've been saying lately that it came from reading two ways of reading the Constitution, pro-slavery, mm. not pro-slavery. Yeah. And what I've been saying, and I've been saying this kind of cavalierly, I haven't really done the research to be able to say it properly, and maybe I can't, but to say that, and it's not, environment, it's not about environmental protection, although that's important to me. Mm. It's to say that pollution, by definition, destroys life, liberty, and property. Yeah. And if we have a constitution that protects your life, liberty, and property, and my right to do things that destroy your life, liberty, and property, that's a house divided that cannot stand. It's fundamentally opposed to each other. Right. Now, you talked about the readings in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. There's also, I read, uh, he's at Princeton and wrote about, um, he, he researched into reading Madison's papers. Oh, Sean Wilentz, probably. Yeah, Sean Wilentz. Yeah. And uh, mm -hmm. there was a lot of – he talked about all the discussion about not letting slave the word into the Constitution and not letting no property and uh, – what no – No property in man. No property in man. Yeah. And that was a debate that happened that people talked about it. And they some made sure that it that wouldn't get in there. So that I think that bolstered the freedom national view. Yeah. But I doubt that they could have possibly talked about pollution because it didn't exist yet. I mean, there were smokestacks to some degree, but not really. Nothing like what we have today. I mean, well, no, there were a thousand issues they couldn't have known about or suggested, including what's happened with firearms. <laughs> I mean, how could late 18th century men even conceive 
of the development of the technology of firearms uh, when they said you should have a well-regulated militia. How could they have even conceived of the decision the court recently made that said the right to bear arms is an individual right? Individual right. You know, there's nothing to do with having a good militia. They said it's an individual right. Now, that that violates everything about originalism because the, the men who wrote that constitution and managed to put that little second amendment in there had no conception of the world we live in with firearms. And, and exactly the same is clearly true with industrial pollution. I mean, you might have been able to imagine that you could pollute a river with something, you know, maybe farm waste or something. They could probably at least conceive of that. But on the colossal scale of industrial pollution and not all the other kinds of pollutants that our our machine world uh, has, has created, they, they could not have imagined that. So environmental issues, sustainability issues, ought not have anything to do with this idea of the original intent of the founders. It has to be seen first through a historical lens and then through a lens of the present looking back through history. But that's often not what constitutional debate is about. What's curious about the anti-slavery, (laughs) pro-slavery constitutional struggle is that, of course, both sides were, were trying to be originalists. <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, while Frederick Douglass was a Garrisonian, his first eh, roughly six, seven, eight years out on the public circuit, he was being an originalist. He was saying, along with Garrison, that the original Constitution is just so hopelessly complicit with slavery that you cannot use it. He called it a, you know, an agreement with hell and a covenant with death. That was Garrison's own language. But then when he switches, it took about three years to go through that process. He's becoming a different kind of originalist. He's looking to other clauses. He's drawing on these other clauses of the Constitution. He's saying, no, no, wait a minute. Look at the preamble. Look at the Bill of Rights. Look at privileges and immunities, et cetera. And it's all there in the language. So you you can have two kinds of, of originalism. Now, I don't know that that applies here to issues of pollution, sustainability, environment, which it's, I haven't thought about it. I mean, that's a fascinating question, Josh. Where would you go? And well, you just perhaps named it, that if the Constitution guarantees us these liberties, uh, this Republican form of government, and in the second Constitution guarantees us an equality before law, then why can't you make the legal case that the Constitution ought to be guaranteeing us a safer environment, a safer water, safer air? And certainly there are a thousand lawyers who will argue that. But at the same time, there's a thousand lawyers who will go to work for whatever, the oil industry, fossil fuel companies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to protect them against further environmental legislation. That's what I meant, I guess, by how all great issues at some point, public issues, pass through our Constitution. That's why we have courts. Love them or hate them. (laughs) (laughs) 
you know, you you talked about there's what it's one thing to interpret the Constitution, but I think Lincoln's King's solution was to amend it and say this is what it says now. Right. And the more I think about it, if I put aside the challenge of passing such a thing, yeah. Although the more I learn about the Thirteenth, the more unbelievable it is that it passed at all, yeah. and yet it did. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And one of the things about it that I that I like about how hard it was to pass was how many people did so many things that at the time anybody would have said, what you're doing is makes absolutely no difference and never possibly could. And right. maybe they went to and several of them went to the grave without ever seeing that it could make a difference that, that just one brief moment when it seemed when it did pass, it could have easily not passed. Right. Had not a few people here and there done a few little things here and there. Right. That collectively added up to it could pass. And I don't think many politicians could get elected today trying to repeal it. So it doesn't seem as divisive now as it did when hundreds of thousands of people were dying. Yeah. And that tells me... Go ahead. Well, that what I was trying to think of was, can I find some sort of reading, as Douglas did and others did, of reading it as protecting the environment? But I think... Uh, the Constitution as it is, or as it was envisioned, as as people discussed in the, that Madison wrote about. But now I'm thinking, yeah, it's not to look, is there something there? Although it'd be great if it did have something there. But to say, we have a model for what works. Yeah. And let's use that model. Because to me, of course, you need the popular vote in the first place, the popular agreement here. But if we get that, then to have an amendment like the 13th, Mm-hmm. That doesn't allow, I don't know the wording of it, but something like not allowing destruction of life, liberty, and property through pollution or something like that. I, I'm not going to get the wording in this. Well, you know, I think the task, and there must be people who've written on this, there must be environmental uh, activists, scholars, and lawyers who have written on this. I mean, I think that it would seem to me the task is to go to the second constitution. The one born of the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, of the first Civil Rights Acts, of the Reconstruction Acts, of this remarkable overnight quest for some legalized form of human equality before law, to go to that second constitution in the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, and even in the Reconstruction Acts, and say, Here is the language. Here is the language that says we should be guaranteed a safer environment, a safer life, uh, liberty to breathe, (laughs) liberty to drink our water, uh, you know, liberty to function in a world that that is growing so much hotter and therefore so much more dangerous. I don't know. The language might have to begin, and there's got to be people writing this. You would know better than I, that if if slavery was an existential threat to the existence of the American Republic, which obviously it was, we have that as a fact, it tore apart the American Union and led to the bloodiest war ever fought till that date. If slavery was such an existential threat, well, is not climate change, is not the heating of the world's environment now an existential threat to life itself, beginning with the the lives of Americans before our own laws, let's just start at home, 
although obviously climate change is an international and global problem. But starting with our own law and our own legal structure, is it not an existential threat to us? And therefore, how do we use our Constitution to fight it, to combat it? Whether we're talking about the climate, you know, the warming of the climate or the polluting of, of the waters, the air, and the earth. Again, I'd like to know who those writers are who are, who are the environmental writers who are making that case? I mean, I have to, I have to say, I don't do environmental history per se, but a lot of people do. In fact, I have probably six colleagues in the Yale History Department in various fields, American history, European history, even ancient history, who are really studying environments. In fact, I have a colleague, Joe Manning, in the Yale History Department, who is who is studying environmental change and even climate change from, I guess, from archaeological sources and all sorts of other sources in um, ancient Mesopotamia and ancient Egypt. In other words, he's trying to show this is an ancient problem. People were contemplating how to respond to what they were themselves doing to the environment say, in the Nile Valley or in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, because those rivers were life itself to those cultures and those peoples. So who are the writers now who are actually using the Constitution to write about this? I don't know. And if you do know who that is, I'd love to read it. Well, this I had on the podcast a law professor from Cardozo who works mm -hmm. in constitutional law, and he was a professor, um, a lawyer with Environmental Defense Fund. Oh, yeah. And also, when I had the idea of an amendment, my first thought was, that's crazy. And it took me a while to get past that. But it turns out that Gaylord Nelson, senator from Wisconsin, father of Earth Day, yeah. proposed an amendment to the Constitution in 1970 Guaranteeing, Did he really? Interesting. Yeah, guaranteeing the right to free uh, to clean environment. God, I, I remember Earth Day because I was in college when that was first started, but I didn't realize there was a constitutional amendment proposed. Yeah, and I've read the congressional record on this, and several other senators were backing him up on it. It obviously didn't get passed, didn't get very far, but it hasn't gone away either. Uh, Tia Nelson, his daughter, has been on the on the podcast, mm -hmm. and also there's uh, Maya Van Rossum is a lawyer in Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania recently, its state constitution had a clause in it that was kind of sitting there, but actually guaranteed to write a right to free environment. And they won a case, a big case. Hmm. Now, two other states, New York being one of them, has what she calls a green amendment, uh -huh. which gives people the ability to sue the government for a clean environment. And she's working on a state approach which I believe is also how the the 13th Amendment also began with the state approach. Well, so did, so did the right to vote for women. It, it happened in states for years before it ever got to the federal amendment. And the more I think about it, the more I think it makes more and more sense to have it as constitutions, almost certainly state level first and then federal level first. But it's it's really difficult for people to stomach because most people's associations of Things that pollute the most are things like flying and air conditioning and things that they want and feel that they can't do without. But I feel like a lot of slave owners felt like they would – I mean, Jim Oak's book, uh, the, the Ruling Race, has these quotes like, we can't have democracy without slavery, which is to me like 
Right. That sounds like it's right out of 1984, except that that's how people felt. Although, in their worldview, as I think Jim shows in that book, that's, that was his earliest book, I think, or one of them. Yeah. It shows that in their world, they could see themselves as good Republicans, small r, believers in Republican government. At the same time, they were slaveholders. They believed they had rights guaranteed in this republic that they chose to belong to. Uh, and yeah, yeah, I mean, you, if you go back and I, I stress this a lot in my own teaching in my course on the Civil War and Reconstruction, I make my students look at pro-slavery ideology. Because if you don't if you don't read some of this, you don't understand how how these people really believed in this. They believed in a structure, an organic, ordered world, where some people were born to labor and some people were born to control that labor. Some people were born to own things and other people were born to work for them. And they had they had racialized this system. They thought some of them into a kind of perfected system. It's hideous. It's horrible. It's no different than some of the perfectionist ideas of fascism or even communism. You know, if you create a, a society of enough uh, forced agreement, you have perfected something, say some ideologies. So, yeah, um, I actually I'm, I'm very intrigued with this idea of how the Constitution I know the Environmental Defense Fund is out there, and so are so many other organizations, but maybe it's still a bit of an untapped resource, if you like, uh, to fight this fight. It's still an ideological fight, though, isn't it? Just like emancipation was. It's still, it's still a fight between systems of belief. I mean, some people just believe the climate is endangered more than others. Uh, some people have interests that dominate uh, how they can even think about this. And some people believe they are simply victims of other people's interests, just the way a lot of Northerners who went West to hopefully get free land and be small farmers out there did not want to have to ever compete with a slave labor system. I do think you're onto something, Josh, with using the template or example of, you know, the prolonged slavery debates that ended up in the terrible collisions that led to the Civil War. And it is true, whether people stop very long to ever think about it, that the American abolition movement, despite its flaws, uh, is the prototype for every other major reform movement that's ever come after it. <laughs> uh, the anti-slavery movement was there, well, it was there as early as the American Revolution. It began to get some traction there in the early 19th century. It really exploded in the wake of the War of 1812 into the 1820s and 30s. And then it developed into formal organizations, never very large, but potent, uh, visible, loud, <laughs> widely distributed uh, organizations that ultimately played absolutely a key role in pushing the society toward a conflict that it had to find some resolution for. The tragedy, of course, is that the ultimate resolution was only in such a terrible war. But the abolition movement is the prototype. 
I mean, I'll give you an example. Uh, oh, about 10 years ago, the center I direct here, yeah, which you mentioned, Center for Slavery and Study for Slavery, Center for the Study of Slavery and Abolition. We decided to get serious about the problem of modern slavery, human trafficking, which happens all across the globe, involves thousands and thousands of people. In fact, there are probably more people today caught up in forms of labor enslavement, a bondage of some sort, than there than there were in the 19th century. So we got involved in that and held we held actually two major conferences on it. We invited NGO people. Uh, we invited scholars who had begun to study this. We invited people to do comparisons. And lo and behold, we found, it was fascinating, we found that the modern anti-slavery movement, that is the anti-trafficking movement and so on and so forth, is essentially repeating many of the same issues and problems and fights that the original abolition movement had in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s. They fight with each other. They fight with each other about strategies and tactics and which strategy will work and which won't. At what level do you use some kind of moral argument? What's, at what level do you have to have a legal argument? At what level do you have to, to just affect real economic power? You know, it's still the same kinds of questions, even in our more complex world. But great reform movements always have to do the essentials of what the American abolition movement did. It started out as an essentially moralistic movement, or what Garrison called moral suasion. Persuade the heart. And then maybe you reach the mind, and then maybe someday you reach the law. Well, that wore out to say the least, or to put it too simply. And by the 1840s and 1850s, and this is where the anti-slavery interpretation of the Constitution really comes from, a lot of abolitionists said, this is not enough. We have to become more political. We have to have a political party. We have to affect party politics. We have to affect high politics. We have to affect Congress. We have to get elected. And that becomes a whole different uh, pathway. Of course, it becomes the more pragmatic world of nitty-gritty politics. And it's easy to forget, uh, depending on how much history people learn anymore, that that Republican Party, born in 1854 around the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which becomes practically overnight such a potent political force. I mean, it's the most successful third-party movement in all of American history. It had forerunners in the what was known as the Liberty Party and then the Free Soil Party. And there was even another version called the Conscience Whigs. These were small, relatively small groups of anti-slavery, politically minded people. Now, we've had an environmental party in America. That's the Green Party. But it always gets off track. It always gets caught up in about every other kind of issue that people on People who are disgusted with the two-party system always want to latch on to these third parties and make them do everything under the sun. I'm not suggesting that an environmental or whatever it would be called um, political party has any chance of actual success, but the methods of political activism, high politics activism, is something that certainly that movement needs. And it has had that, of course. It's made tremendous inroads into the Democratic Party. And it has 
millions of young voters in particular waiting to see, you know, what are Democrats really going to do about climate? And, you know, there's plenty of evidence that the Democrats are on their side, but you still have to get things passed through something called the U.S. Congress. <laughs> there's also this huge issue difference. There were a lot of, I guess, at one point there were 13 slave states. Right. And then there was more parity. But there were always people who didn't own slaves. But there's no one who doesn't pollute. That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, we're all part of that. We all have a footprint, don't we? And yeah, you're talking a lot about climate, but pollution is another big thing. That Whenever people focus on climate, they always tend to find solutions that wreck something else like biodiversity, which is just as important. Yeah. So if we just say climate, guaranteed we're going to cut down more forests and other issues. Yeah. I mean, right now people are generally seeing that cobalt and this mining is going to wreck Africa and South America and everywhere. Yeah. But there's past that. It's not even if we... Uh, that's getting into the science of it. But Lincoln said, this is probably my most fundamental quote on sustainability as well, mm -hmm. is the most damaging thing you can do to yourself is to do something that you believe is wrong. And when in his time, that meant we had to, people who owned slaves had to convince themselves that what they believed was wrong was right. Yeah. So they had to say, well, they're not human or, you know, we're bringing them to civilization or something like that. And that internal conflict is really, it's brutal. Yeah. And it forces you to keep doing it more. Oh, yeah. Even while you're suppressing and denying your own awareness that it's every time you see someone suffering who's human because they are human, you hate them for sticking in your face that you're lying about hurting them. And that's what we're doing today. Yeah. Except we're not holding whips. We're not, but the death is, it's still there. Right. And we know that it's there. And so this. And the, uh, and the damage tends to be way uh, disproportionate for people who are poor. Yeah. And most of them are not American. I mean, although we do have Cancer Alley in this country, we do have sacrifice zones, which are on par with many other places in the world. Yeah. So this getting popular support and getting organizations, when everyone's, you know, there's a lot of people, they think that sustainability also means, well... I want to see my mom. She's on the opposite coast. So I'll do a couple steps, but not past that. And so they self-sabotage. Right. They get on a, they put their mother on a flight. Yeah. And, or they put themselves on a flight, even if they are, you know, a vice president who won a Nobel prize and an Oscar. <laughs> and what more proof do you need that he's not, that he doesn't believe what he's saying, that he doesn't act in accordance with what he's saying. Yeah. Now, I don't feel that, but I see, I can certainly imagine someone concluding that. And that's him. So what about everyone else? And so it's as difficult as it might have been if you were in the middle of Alabama to get rid of your slaves. Yeah. It's very easy to not own slaves if you're in Vermont. Right. In 1850. And, but to not pollute anywhere is really difficult. It's extremely difficult because uh, pollution is, if you want to use that term, is part and parcel of the way capitalism operates. And I'm not an anti-capitalist, you know, per se. I, I, I mean, I, I don't start every paragraph with my anti-capitalist credentials or anything like that, but it is part and parcel of this. I mean, capitalism has to have growth and capitalism, capitalism will create growth and travel is part of that growth. Look what happened in the pandemic when no one was traveling. 
It's true. There's no question. This it, it, sustainability may be sustainability and certain environmental issues may be uh, the most difficult problem humans have ever faced. I mean, we're never going to solve war. We probably accept that. We haven't fully solved slavery, of course. It does keep coming back and coming back and coming back. But the world acted on slavery all within a century. This goes back to a point I think you made at the outset. It is, And this is why we do history, isn't it? This is why you're asking about this. Almost no one was attacking slavery from a moral or even a political point of view, except enslaved people, until the early 18th century. And then hardly anyone. You know, the 1720s gives us the first uh, the selling of Joseph by Samuel Sewell, a kind of a manifesto against slavery written by a Puritan minister in Massachusetts. But not until really the 1760s and 70s do you get anything resembling uh, some kind of anti-slavery organizations in Britain and the U.S. And then it's the age of revolution. Three of them you know, the U.S., the French, and the Haitian, that explodes abolitionism or anti-slavery ideas out into the world because they were very much part of all those Enlightenment ideas that came out of the Age of Revolution. The very idea of, you know, human liberty, human equality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then within less than the next century, all of the empires, I think there are 25 or so emancipations that occurred between uh, 1800 and 1887 when uh, the Cubans were the last to do it. All these empires, all these nations, including Russia with serfdom, legally ended enslavement of human beings, all in a century. And these were systems that had existed, of course, for millennia. How can we imagine? Here's here's the question. Uh, you know, how can we imagine in our world ending the things that threaten us in similar existential ways all within a century? How do we do that? Are our problems just that much bigger? Are our problems just that much more complex because the modern world has become so technologically and scientifically uh, both smaller and larger. I, I don't know. I mean, th- these are these are gigantic questions. But if the world could move to fundamentally end slavery, although of course it came back in different forms, but if they could do that across all these, you know, cultures and time zones and empires, how can we do it? with name your top five issues how do we do well this is yes i i feel like we're barely scratching the surface oh uh, we are we're barely and whenever i think of the reconstruction i just think of yeah the laws were written but the land wasn't redistributed as one no base of power they did not know how to do that they were frightened yeah property redistribution was something those 19th even the most radical of those 19th century men we're not very well prepared to do. Thaddeus Stevens had a plan for doing that. Douglas liked his plan. There were a few other of the old abolitionists who conceived of ideas of land and property redistribution, but that got nowhere in legislation. 
Uh, they were much better at political rights or establishing political rights than they ever were at any anything resembling economic rights. And that's been the story ever since. You know, political liberty always advances out ahead of economic liberty or equality, has has so everywhere it's everywhere it's been tried. Because in in the economics of liberty is where the ultimate power really is. Um, but I love the fact that you're thinking about this and looking at those amendments, because that's the Constitution we actually live under. It's the second Constitution that we really live under, not the one written in Philadelphia. We're a bit over time. Would you be game to continue this conversation in the second episode? Uh, sure, sure. Let's try to do that. And we can, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not an environmental scholar, as I tried to say, but, but I do find this fascinating, Josh, and I'm happy to, I'm happy to keep it going. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to learn from in history. And I think this movement of, of protecting the environment is, I think, is barely seen what's, what we have to work with. And, I think it can help a lot. You know, we're having, I mean, we could end on this idea. We're having history wars now, once again. Uh, they're not new, but they're over race. They're over sexuality. Uh, they're over whatever the right wing in America seems to have become frightened by. And it's serious stuff. Uh, and I'm deeply concerned about it because I'm concerned about teachers. I'm concerned about curriculum. I'm concerned about this craft of history. and yet. Maybe we need a history war over the environment and over sustainability and over how we pollute our world. Maybe we need to go back through history and examine that, dredge it up, no pun intended, but you know, bring it out. That's what environmental historians do. I have a colleague here, Paul Sabin, who would be great on this too. You should talk to Paul. Uh, he's a terrific environmental historian. He's currently, I believe, writing a book on uh, oil companies in the 20th century and how they came to achieve and wield their power. So maybe we need a good history war. You know, and what might happen, in other words, that the right wing in America would get all hot and bothered and upset and up in arms because, oh, my God, in the schools, their children are learning environmental history. Because <laughs> they're probably not, not very much anyway. Maybe we have to cause one. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait. This pains me to say it, but let's start here next time. Okay. Yeah, this is, I mean, I'm really excited about this continued conversation. So thank you very much. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.